The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have, this, uh, have a seat, and if uh, kids, you guys can be dismissed to your classes. If you have Bibles, go ahead and grab those and open those up to 2 Samuel 24. And I know that you are sad about that. Because 2 Samuel 24 is the last chapter in 2 Samuel. Yeah, there it is. Well, we've been going through uh, our series, First and Second Samuel, Search for a King, uh, ever since the week after Easter. And so this has been a, a really uh, incredible series for us as a church. I know it's been incredible for me uh, as a pastor to teach through this. It's grown me. It's stretched me. It's challenged me. And today will be uh, no exception. And so what I want to do before we dive into the last chapter uh, of, the, of this book is I want to just kind of rewind like 55 chapters ago, all right? And so uh, about 55 chapters ago, 1 Samuel opens up with a time when Israel was coming out of slavery. They were uh, oppressed by Egypt. They were rescued out of Egypt. They went through the wilderness and led by God. They uh, were, were um, uh, provided by, by God. They were taken care of by God. They rescued by God. And now it's time for them to enter into the promised land. And, and so one thing that the people begged God for more than anything else was a king. They looked around at other nations and they said, well, these other nations have kings. We need a king. These other nations have these, these things going for them, and that is primarily because we believe that that is the king. And so they thought a king would give them some sort of national identity, right? They're like, okay, well, if we had a king, we would have some ownership. They thought a king would guarantee them some type of security, they thought a king would bring them some stability, and so they began to beg God and say, God, I know you're great and all. I know you've taken care of us and all. I know you've rescued us and all. I know you provide for us and all. I know that you are God, but what we really, really want is a king. And so in their search for a king, we're introduced to one of the most significant men in the Bible named David. And David was thought to be the ideal king. David's story was epic, it was, uh, was God-ordained, it was, it was uh, continued to be uh, God-glorifying, and God gave David the throne. But what we see is that even David would tragically disappoint. And, and so let me just get you right to the punchline. King David, like all other kings, are to point us forward to a greater king. You've heard me say that at least 25 times over this series is that David's story points us to a greater story. That the King David is to point us to the King of Kings and the greater King. And so this King that was coming was not only to be from God, but this would be God himself. And so David's story is to point us to King Jesus, the son of David, the King of all kings, the one who would right all wrongs and the one who had put back together all that was broken. And so 2 Samuel closes by showing us how David disappoints. But again, it shows us again how Jesus saves. So let's look at chapter 24. We'll pick it up in verse one. 
It says, again. Everyone say, again. Okay, so this chapter is going to be like the others. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against who? Israel. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go. Go ahead. Number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eye of the Lord is the king still to see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. God is saying, you want to know how big your nation is? You wanna start counting heads? You wanna start building an army? Okay, go ahead. King David gives the command to count the men. Namely, he wants to know how many men that he has in order to know the strength of his army because David wants to find out as a nation, as their identity, as their stability, and as their security, how strong are we? But Joab, David's commander, he says, David, I mean, why do you delight in this? Even Joab knows this is not of the Lord. Joab doesn't normally play the good guy. If you remember back, Joab was the guy who would pull people into the dark alley and stab them in the stomach. He, he was not really a God-honoring man, but even he knows, David, this, this is not what God desires. Even Joab knows that it's wrong. So David, David ignores the advice and says, let's count them anyway. Let's count to see how we're doing. And so in the first four verses, we have to actually stop and ask, why is counting the people so wrong? I mean, I mean it seems like responsible management, doesn't it? I mean, as a king, wouldn't you know, want to know like how many people you're over? And so why is it so sinful now, the Bible's going to point to us to several reasons, but the number one reason may shock some of you, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's wrong because God says it's wrong. It's ultimately wrong because God says that it's wrong. Now, let me press into this for a moment. You're like, that doesn't sound shocking. That sounds pretty trivial. But actually it's not because we live in a pragmatic society and even, even in the church where we feel like that if we don't see why something is wrong, eh, quite possibly it's not wrong. Our society has created a, a, a destructive understanding that tries to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. 
Okay, follow me. Culture says, okay, in order to determine what is right and what is wrong, that, that, that determination is actually based on two questions. And the first question is, do I want to do it? And the second question is, does it hurt anybody? And so if we could just answer those two questions, then we can determine what is right and what is wrong. And we have come to embrace such a self-centered, subjected morality that if the answer to the first question is, yes, I want to do it, and the answer to the second question is, no, it doesn't hurt anybody, then it can't possibly be wrong. There must not be anything wrong with it. I mean, can I have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want, however much I want? Well, do you want to do it? Yeah. Does it hurt anybody? No. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. What about, what about, what about if, 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 if I become pregnant, can I, can I, can I uh, abort my child if I don't want to be a mother? Well, do you not want to be a mother? Yes, I don't want to. Does it hurt anybody? Well... No, because technically, it's not a somebody, so I guess there's nothing wrong with it. See where I'm going. You can answer those two questions and say, well, well why would that be wrong? Can I, can, I, can I change the gender God gave me? Well, do you want to do it? Yes. Does it hurt anybody? No. Then mind your own business. It can't be wrong. Now, even Christians live this way. Even Christians say, well, let's answer the questions. I mean, we come to something in the Bible that God tells us to do, or we come to something in the Bible that God tells us not to do, and we immediately respond in our hearts, but why? I mean, I don't see anything wrong with it. I mean, honestly, I, I don't see a downside. And so follow me. Even our obedience to God as Christians only comes through the filter of our understanding. But see, at the end of the day, the truth is, wrong is wrong because God says it's wrong. And the problem with going through life, evaluating our moral choices based on what we want or whether or not it hurts anybody, is that assumes that we have God-like knowledge. So not only that, but if we only obey God when we understand, it's not obedience, it's agreement. Imagine you're a parent and you have a grade school kid and you're constantly trying to get the kid to put down the iPad. And you're like, come on, honey, isn't it enough? Let's put that away. Let's go outside. Let's play a little bit. Let's, let's do something else. Let's, let's talk. Let's play a game, a board game or something. Let, let's get off the electronics. And the kid says, but, 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 what's wrong with it? I mean, I want to keep watching this show, I, but, but you've been on YouTube for 11 hours straight, but it isn't hurting anyone, right? 
And, and by the way, I want candy for every meal. I don't want to eat chicken. I don't want vegetables. I don't want anything. I just want candy because it makes me happy. And if I just eat what I want and eat candy all the time, it just doesn't hurt anyone. Have you ever had your three-year-old question your decision and discredit your authority? But why? Why? But why? I mean, I mean, mom, I mean, what, what's, what's the big deal? Why, why? I mean, what's, what's the problem? It doesn't hurt anyone. Now, I, I just want you to, I, I bring that up because I want you to consider something. I want you to consider which is greater. The gap between your understanding and a three-year-old's or the gap between your understanding and God's? Which is greater? And so when we say, I obey God only if I understand why, we refuse the gap differential and we make ourselves equal to God. And when we refuse to admit that our understanding before God is like a child and he is the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe, we're refusing the right relationship that God had set in place as he is our father. And so the truth is, if we only obey God when we understand and agree with God, it's actually not obedience at all. And I believe that there are a lot of Christians who have actually never obeyed God. Only acted faithful in the areas in which they agree with God. In fact, until God tells us something hard, until God Bring something that feels difficult. Until God brings something to us that frustrates our own will and our own plan for our life, until God graciously brings us to that place where we have to trust God's command, not, not because we understand it, but because we see God as trustworthy, then we actually never obeyed God. We just simply Agree with him. Listen, if you only obey Jesus when he makes sense to you, then he's not your Lord. He's your advisor. He's simply a good teacher. Is Jesus your Lord or is he your advisor? That's the question. Have you invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Or have you invited the Bible and Christ and God to just simply offer suggestions on the table for your consideration? Is he your Lord? Now, you may be asking, Eric, what's the big deal? Why is it a problem if I just take advice and weigh it out? I mean, Eric, 
what's the deal? What's the big deal about obedience? Well, in the beginning of time, the first pragmatist came into the Garden of Eden and said to Adam and Eve, why? But what's wrong with it? Why can't you eat of the tree? What's the big deal? Is it gonna hurt somebody? Scripture tells us that they looked at the tree and they saw that it was good to eat. So the deceiver, he says, look at how good it is. Doesn't hurt anybody. That little bunny's eating the fruit off the tree right now. It's not dying. There's nothing wrong with that fruit. Is it poisonous? No. Look, the animals are eating it. Why not eat it? Well, Adam and Eve looked at it. They saw, well, you're right. There's nothing wrong with that fruit. There's no good reason to not eat from the tree. So they ate. But the ultimate reason God told them not to eat of the tree is because God set into his creation a divine order of trust and authority. This is the order of creation. I'm God. I'm the creator. You're the created. I have authority. You are under me. I will take care of you. You must trust me. You must understand that I am for you. The ultimate reason God told them not to eat of the tree is because he's God and he said so and God commanded them not to eat of the tree because God's desire for them was for them to determine in their hearts that God is my creator, God is my sustainer, I can trust in God's wisdom, and I can trust in God over my own understanding. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust in God. When we say, I'll only obey as long as it makes sense to me, and I'll only obey as long as I agree, is another way of saying, I won't obey. And we refuse the authority of God. And that is sin. And sin leads to death. When we only obey when we understand, we demote God to equal. When we disobey because we don't understand or don't agree, we actually demote God further to our subordinate and we promote ourselves to superior. God, I know you say this, but I'm not gonna obey because I'm superior. And the point I wanna make here is that if for no other reason other than the fact that God is our creator and that God is wise, and listen, God is our trustworthy sustainer that he is absolutely worthy to obey, period. Many Christians only trust and obey when they agree 
not because they believe God is wise and trustworthy. And so today I want to encourage you, God said it. It's the ultimate reason. And that should be enough. But there are other reasons. God points us to other reasons why counting the men would be sinful. You see, the sin is in David's motivation, not necessarily his action. His actions is a result of his motivation. And remember in verse 3, it said David delighted in this. I mean, even Joab says, why does the king delight in such a thing? Joab could see David's pride, his desire for something outside of God to give him identity and security and stability. Look in verse 8. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 12 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah was 500,000. Now, the reason I point out this verse is because I want you to see that David is not just counting heads, but actually he's counting men, particularly fighting men, particularly men who can go to war, particularly men he could use for his army. And so this clarifies that he's just not counting people, but he wants to know how strong his army is. And so he is counting men because this was about identity. In those days, the king's army would be the measure of his stature. They would look to the size of the army for validation. They would look to the size of their army for for identity. But not only that, he was counting, and counting was wrong because he was about his security. He's like, okay, I want to see how secure we are. I want to see how strong we are. If someone attacks us, can we hold them off? A large army guaranteed that you would be safe from attack. David would look at the size of his army and say, we're secure. We need more men. But lastly, counting the men would be wrong because it was about aggressive power. It was about aggressive, sustaining power. You don't assess your army unless you think about using it. Just like when you go to the store, you say, how much is it? What's it going to cost? Let me look. See if I can afford that. David is counting his army because he wants to use it, meaning... He's going to look around to see if he can conquer some others. Counting was searching. Searching for identity, security, and stability. And so where is your identity? Where is your stability? What do you measure? What do you look at and count to see if you're doing all right? I have to be honest, as a pastor, I was just uh, in Chicago with my wife at a couple's retreat. There's pastors, hundreds of pastors in the room, and, and, and there is a way, there is a, there is a cloud that lingers over a room like that to focus on numbers and the size of your church. 
What church are you at? How big is that? And, and so there's this, there's this pull on me as a pastor sometimes. Okay, you, we need to count the people or we need to count the offering. And, and, and so easy is it to kind of tip that to say, okay, this, this defines our identity or this defines our security or this defines who we are. And, and so I just want to remind you that in Luke 10, Jesus sends his boys on, on kind of this missions trip. And they come back and they are stoked about their accomplishments. And Jesus, he understands the temptation of that. And so he says to them, he warns them, he says, do not rejoice that demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, rejoice that you know God. Rejoice that he is your God. Rejoice, and not only do you know God, but rejoice in the salvation that comes from God through Christ alone. Rejoice that Jesus has called you to himself. Don't rejoice in your accomplishments. Don't count that as your part of your identity. Rest in me and me alone. And so again, we have to ask, where do we find our own stability, security, and identity Do you constantly count how much you make? Do you lean on your accomplishments in the workplace, in your degrees, the grades you make, the head of your class? Do you find your identity in what you see in the mirror? Do you find your identity in how you make people feel or how you've created a a dependency upon yourself? Do you find your identity in the way others pay attention to you? Beware of anything that takes your focus off of God as your identity, your security, and your stability. Now, the chapter shifts in verse 10. Look at it with me. But David's heart struck him. After he had numbered the people, And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence or disease in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Say, his mercy is great. He says, his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence, a disease upon the land from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. This is a circular account. 
Meaning this event is not just something that happened, but it's something that happens. Let me illustrate in 1 Samuel 15. It's a parallel passage to this. In the history of Israel, God comes to King Saul. And he says to King Saul, listen, Saul, I want you to go and I want you to attack the Amalekites. Because the Amalekites were imperialistic. They were bloodthirsty people. They were genocidal. They, they loved to attack and they loved to plunder and they loved to enslave and they loved to impress other nations around them. And so like every other nation, the Amalekites were built on the principle of power. Who can we overtake? Who can we, who can we own? Who can we, who can we destroy? Which means their confidence was based on their military might. And they would begin to attack weaker countries and they would enrich themselves with the spoils of war by plundering and enslaving and controlling other people for their own namesake. The Amalekites were built on power. They would constantly, consistently take from others. And so God comes to King Saul and he says, I want you to attack them as a means of God's justice. But listen, when you attack them, I want you to leave nothing. I want you to destroy it all. Which means, I want you to kill all the people. I want you to destroy all the sheep, all the livestock. Leave nothing Behind. So Saul goes and he attacks as a form of God's justice upon the wicked people. But what Saul does is he spares the nobles. He spares the kings and their families because they're good bargaining for later down the road. He takes them prisoner, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't kill the livestock. He actually brings the livestock back because livestock is valuable. I mean, I mean, what a waste it would be to just kill the livestock. I mean, come on, this is like wealth. So instead of destroying it all, Saul says, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep the spoils. I'm going to bring it back with me. But listen, but listen, don't judge me because I'm going to make a huge offering to the Lord. I mean, I'm going to double tithe. I mean, I'm going to give and I'm going to give abundantly to God. And so I'm going to make great sacrifices from these spoils unto the Lord. And then the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and he says, King, didn't God tell you to destroy everything? He says, why have you disobeyed God? And Saul says, well, I mean, I obeyed. Like 98% I obeyed. I mean, I, I, I obeyed most of it. But, but listen, listen, listen. But I'm giving it to God. I thought, I thought maybe I should just show a little mercy. I thought, I thought maybe I could, I could bring it. I mean, I didn't understand. So I did what I wanted to do. And through Samuel, God says to Saul, I reject you as king. I'm taking your kingdom from you. In other words, 
God forsakes Saul. Because Israel, they were supposed to be God's people. And their identity and their security was to be in God and God alone, not their military strength. Which is why God instructed Saul, listen, I don't want you to profit a cent from my justice. I don't want you to gain anything from it. I don't want you to take from the Amalekites. I want to do what I think God needs to do in this case. And I don't want you to profit from it. Because if you profit from it, that means God's people will then be seen as the oppressors for their own personal gain. And if you use this to enrich yourself, and you enrich yourself at the expense of others, that is not my will. But, 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 but God, did you not see the offering that I made to you? But God, didn't you know the sacrifice that I made? And God says, listen, obedience is the sacrifice. I want you to see me as God. I want you to trust me. I don't need a sacrifice. I want your obedience. And so now, what we see in 2 Samuel 24 is here's David and here's Israel. And David is wanting to use his power, counting the army. Why count? Because David is counting with the intention to use his army to exploit, to oppress the weak and profit from the gain. And in verse 10, David realizes it says his heart struck him. He says, I repent. David doesn't make excuses like Saul. David says, I have sinned greatly before the Lord. And so this time the prophet Gad says, you're still responsible. And so he gives him some options. And David says, let me fall onto the mercy of of God because the mercy of God is great. Now, God struck down 70,000 people with a plague. And it seems like that the people are getting punished for David's sin. But if you remember verse one, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against who? Israel. Which means what was going on in David's heart was also going on in the people's heart. And the Bible makes it clear that all of the human race has rebelled against God. Not just Adam, not just David, but everyone has rebelled against God. And all of us, whether by nature or by choice, have sinned against God. We've walked away from God. We've gone away. We've gone our own way. We've sought identity and security and safety apart from God, trying to create a kingdom for ourselves, making ourselves the king and so no one can truly point their finger at God and say that's unfair and so how can a loving God judge or punish anyone people would ask but a better question is how can a just God forgive and save any of us well the answer is the cross the cross is good news for bad people 
that's us. And all the just wrath of God towards sin and sinners was poured out and paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ as the Savior. It is his righteousness that is gifted and clothed upon those who would trust him by faith. Listen, not because we earn it and not because we deserve forgiveness, but rather because Jesus graciously gives us simply because his mercy is great. And so don't think, oh, I read this, and I'm like, oh, the God of the Old Testament is so grumpy. He's so judgy. He's so slaying nations and stuff. But listen, even Jesus taught this. In Luke 13, there's a situation where a tower fell on 18 Israelites. Remember that? And it killed all of them. And when the people came and says, Jesus, well, Why did that tower fall on those people? Jesus says, do you suppose that the Israelites were just more wicked than everyone else? As in, do you think that God just saw the wicked people standing in one place and said, oh yes, here's my opportunity. No. Jesus says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, you're all guilty the same that those 18 people were. And unless you turn from your sin, you will eventually suffer the same fate that they did. So Jesus is saying the question is not why did the tower fall on those 18 people, but rather why did it not fall on everyone? Why does God forsake Saul? And have mercy on David. Repentance. That's the difference. Saul makes excuses. David is cut to the heart. So, in one sense, the 70,000 Israelites who died were not innocent. David is there, the nation of Israel is there. They're looking to become violent and aggressive and prideful and oppressive. And they're putting their trust and their hope and their identity and their accomplishments of self and the size of their army rather than God. And so God plagued 70,000 lives to keep Israel from becoming even more wicked. And that is what brings us to the very point of every passage, of every chapter of this entire series. First Samuel opened up with Israel looking for a king to replace God. Second Samuel ends with that very king looking to his army to replace God. And it comes full circle, look in verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people 
and said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, these people, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. There is a parallel account of this passage in 1 Chronicles where David says, I saw the angel with a literal sword stretched out to bring death to Jerusalem. And so with the angel there, with the sword raised, ready to bring death to Jerusalem, David says, don't, don't, don't punish these people. They're just sheep. Let your hand be against me. I'm the shepherd. David offers his life for the many. And God accepts the offer of David and says, stop. Hold your hand. Kill no more. God says, I accept that plea. Accept. God doesn't kill David, does he? But instead, God provided a substitute. Verse 18, it says that God asked David to build an altar in that spot. At the very point that he said that he saw the angel with his sword raised and where God said, stay your hand, that was the place that David was to make a sacrifice. So David, it says that he goes and he buys the threshing floor of the Jebusite. And so he goes to the owner and the owner of the threshing floor looks at David, recognizes him king, and he says, no, 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 you don't have to buy it. I'll just give it to you. You can, you can have that place. And then the story ends with David's response in 2 Samuel 24, 24. Look at what it says. He says, but the king said to Aruna, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings, the Lord my God, that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea of the land and plague and death was averted from Israel. As the band comes and we get ready to respond, I want to point out a few things. David, David buys the very place that the angel stayed his hand of death. And in that place, he offers a sacrifice. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says that that threshing floor, that place that David offered the sacrifice was on top of Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Anyone? Bueller? Mount Moriah was the place that Abraham had attempted to sacrifice Isaac. And in that account, God sent an angel 
to stay his hand, to stop from sacrificing his own son. Abraham stood above his son with the knife raised high, ready to offer his son as a sacrifice in obedience to God when God tells him, stay your hand. Stop. No more. And the angel pointed to a ram who was caught in the thicket and God gave the sacrificial substitute instead. And now here's what's interesting. Is a thousand years after that moment, in that very same spot, God, the same spot that God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son, in that very spot now, God stops the angel from killing the national child Israel. And that threshing floor that David bought was also the very same place that Solomon would build the temple where Israel would bring their sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And that sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins in the temple that Solomon built would point us forward to another lamb, another sacrifice that would die once and for all time for the sins of the people. And so a thousand years after God provided a substitute for Abraham, God provided a sacrificial substitute for David. And a thousand years after God provided a sacrificial substitute for David, God would provide in that same place another sacrificial substitute. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus would be lifted up on a cross on the top of a mountain. And the knife of judgment would slash this time through his sinless sacrificial substitute because he was bearing in his own flesh the punishment that you and I deserve. You see, Jesus, he is the sacrificial substitute. Jesus, his body was broken. In the same way, Jesus' blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. God provided once and for all the substitute so that sinners like you and me could go free. If we receive Jesus by faith, God once again will show his great mercy and his forgiveness. And God will stay his hand of judgment against us. Because on that cross, he who knew no sin became sin. So that in him, we could become the righteousness of God. And here's what's crazy. Is that when David experienced that sacrificial substitute of God, David could have said, well, thank you. How nice it is to make it so easy that I don't even have to pay anything for it. 
I could, I could give an offering that costs me nothing. I can just simply live however I want and do whatever I want. It doesn't cost me anything. But David said, no, I will not offer to the Lord my God which costs me nothing. I will pay with every breath my life to obey the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he covered it up and then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy it. You see, when you experience the great grace and the great mercy of God, who would come down in our darkest state and provide his own body and his own blood as a substitute, in our joy, we would go and we'd buy that field and we would follow him. And so we do not offer a life that simply costs us nothing because obedience is the sacrifice. Jesus is worthy of our very best because without Jesus, we would be lost. Without Jesus, we would be nothing. And so when we say the search is over, that Jesus is my king, Jesus is my life, we come to the table in worship and say, Jesus, Jesus, you are the shepherd that paid for my sin. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for your word. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to come and even understand your word. But today we come with humble hearts, not with total understanding, but we come by faith. Lord, today we wanna trust you. We wanna honor your authority. We wanna give our lives completely to you. And so Jesus, I ask you by your Holy Spirit that you would come and you would penetrate our hearts today. That we would stop counting things that give us identity. They, we would stop numbering things that somehow give us security and safety. But God, we would fix our eyes completely and totally upon you to be our King, to be our Lord, to be our Savior. Today, let us trust you beyond anything of this world that you are the sacrifice sets us free. Oh, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Okay, listen. We have two options. We always have these options. And the options is this. We can respond to the Holy Spirit and 
we can respond to the word of God like Saul or like David. We could discredit our sin, not think it's a big deal. We can say things like, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. Or we could trust God and we could humbly repent with a broken heart. Listen to me, my friends. When we do the latter, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to make us brand new. And so, in this morning, do not forsake the opportunity that God has given you to humble your hearts before Him and cry out to Him and say, forgive me. Forgive me, I've been foolish. Forgive me, I want to lean upon your great mercy. I would encourage you to do that this morning. If, you, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I would encourage you to do that. You can do it right where you are. You can simply pray a prayer. You can simply talk to God. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you don't know how, but just simply say, God, I need you. Jesus, I receive you. And I'm asking you to wash me clean. The table, communion is for believers. So listen, if you're not a believer, there's nothing wrong with not coming to the table. But as we come as believers, we come with remembrance. That we didn't deliver ourselves, but he delivers us. We come with a worshipful heart, not because we're awesome, but because he is. And so the way we do that here is we make two rows. We come through the middle. You come to the table, one of these three. You take your time. You can take communion here. And when you're done, you can exit out the side rows and back to our seats. We'll sing, we'll praise, and we'll worship in remembrance of what God has done. I love you guys.